0: Welcome back to Mikey Morris' Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 240 today. Uh, we're going to be joined by Andrew Collins. We've had Andrew on the show before. I forget what episode number it was, but it was about a couple years ago when uh, Denisovan Origins came out, so you can go check that out. Uh, we're going to call this one Origins of the God Part 2. We did have Dr. Gregory Little on to discuss Part 1, and we have Andrew on to discuss Part 2. Uh, Andrew is a science and history writer. He's author of over... 16 books, uh, including Ashes of Angels, Gateway to Atlantis, Gods of Eden, Denisovan Origins, The Cygnus Mystery, Path of Souls, Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, uh, and many more. You can go check out those links. I have the link down below uh, the video if you want to check out his books if you have not already. Um, and, uh, before we get started here, you can head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments, tons of stuff on there. Uh, we have ones with Randall Carlson, Rick Strassman, um, Dr. Gregory Little, anybody you can think of. We have uh, tons of episodes on there, so go check that out. Um. Also, if you have not already, check out our merch store. We have all those designs right there. Anubis holding our logo. Uh, hashtag Let More East Speak. Uh, the Portara of Naxos. Lots of good designs, so go check that out. Uh, and if you have not already head on over to indrasweb.org. This is a social media platform we cre- created to connect open minds. So whether you want to hypothesize, theorize, speculate, uh, it's the perfect place to do that. So please head on over there. We are still working on getting that app store, but we should be doing that shortly. And one last thing, uh, we are giving away another mind escape t-shirt uh, Tom Hickey from Ireland won last month. So, congratulations to Tom again. This is the t shirt. We have larges and mediums left. Um, if you want to be entered to win, all you have to do is go to Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify, uh, or Google Podcast, leave a five star review, um, and then take a screenshot of that, and then send that to mindescapepodcast at gmail.com, and that will enter you to win. Uh, but, uh, yeah, again, uh, thank you to everybody participating. And uh without further ado, welcome back on the show. Andrew, how are you?
1: Um yes, very well, thank you. Here just outside of London with clear skies, although beautiful, I went out washing a couple of days ago and it's still out there and uh there were thunderstorms over the last few days and it's got wet, so I'm just leaving it there. But well, that's my mundane world. Um <laughs> obviously we're here to talk about books and the mysteries of life, so ready for that.
0: Awesome, yeah.
1: Uh, I really
0: enjoyed. Obviously, we had you on when we talked about *Denise of an Origins*, and you and Gregory Little wrote that book or co-wrote that book together. Uh, this is another one you guys worked on together. Uh, Dr. Gregory's portion was more uh, the paranormal, Jungian psychology side of things, and um, all of that great stuff. And your your portion seems to be more centered around this. Uh, is it Kazam Chasm Cave? Is it? K- it's- cave? Kazem. Kazem. Yeah, um, in, in uh Israel near Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Um and uh what I found most interesting was just how old uh the inhabitants of this cave were. I mean where from what did you say four hundred and thirty thousand years ago to two hundred thousand years ago? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's
0: it. So when you look at uh your portion of the book, um it seems like you tend to spearhead more of the um middle eastern region or mesopotamian regions and gregory little usually tends to focus on the native american mounds in ancient america um which is good because it seems like we're getting both portions of the world uh during that time period uh what did you find the most interesting when you went there and checked all this out because you tend to travel to these locations and um, you get your boots Mm. on the ground what did you find most interesting when you got there
1: Well, um, let's look at the reason why I went there in the first place. And this is obviously the Kezem Cave, uh, which is just outside of Tel Aviv in modern-day Israel. And, I mean, the the place had been on my radar for for a while. I realised that some great discoveries were going on there. Um, But it wasn't really until 2019 when a headline came up that said that the earliest evidence of shamanism anywhere in the world had just been found there and that you know a paper had been written about this and this evidence came from the discovery of this swan wing bone which had been clearly removed from the 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 bird and bear in mind that the the wing is obviously that which you know lifts the creature into the air i mean it's a vet it's the most important bone uh in a body uh, if you're using it as paraphernalia for, for shamanism, and uh, it had been modified, it had got marks on it, which showed it had been modified, and it was at the end of its life placed within what I would describe as almost like the holy of the holies of the, in the cave, um, so it was obviously highly prized, and it was almost certainly used in rituals where, um, a, you know, what we'd now call a shaman, would go into an altered state and um, connect with other worldly realms and the intelligences therein. Um, and this was, you know, th- this was the information that was coming out of the cave from the archaeologists. This wasn't some mad idea that I came up with. You know, they firmly believed that these early inhabitants of the cave, you know, were engaged in, you know, the earliest known form of shamanism and that it involved... The swan, well, as many people that know my books will know, uh, that is I've got a very, very strong interest in swan shamanism, um, you know, in books like Cygnus Key, Cygnus Mystery, The Origins, you know, which shows how important the swan was to understanding our relationship to the cosmos and the belief that life and creation actually came from an area of the sky that's marked today by the, uh, the stars of Cygnus, the Celestial swan, and that this, in many ways, affected what exactly birds uh, the shamans used to try and enter into an domain that they coincided with the sky world. Well, I'm not saying that this was going on at the Kesem Cave, um, but what was so interesting... Is that these same people at the you know at this very time between four hundred and two hundred thousand years ago were also becoming the smartest people on the planet, and you yeah, this was a number of, of firsts for humanity, everything from um, the discovery of of what they called canned food, which was essentially a way of preserving the legs of um, deer with their marrow inside so that they could just put them in their backpack and, you know, keep them and, and you know, have a ready meal for, for, for months on end, you know, if they were going out. Um, uh, the first uh, freezers, not obviously the freezers that we have today, but a way of, of freezing food very quickly using ash um, so that it could be stored away and used at a later date. Uh, the first ever production line of what they call blade tools, Um, which, you know, was unique up to that time. You know, a few had been found, but not in this way. A so-called school of rock um, where, you know, pupils would come into the cave and sit at different places and learn how to manufacture certain types of tools. The first permanent use of, um, of fires over a prolonged period of time at a single location in a hearth. The first use of fire to temper stone to um, so they can more easily used to make stone tools so you know i mean these might not sound like very important to us today but this was this was giant steps in humanity's development back then and it seemed too much of a coincidence that these were the first people who were getting into shamanism so you know what exactly was the link and My belief has always been, and this is, you know, been there right the way through my research of the origins of civilization, is that we had help, not necessarily in the Eric von Däniken, you know, ancient astronauts, um, you know, idea of aliens coming down and just verbally giving us, you know, information on how to build this and how to build that. I've always felt that it's something far more subtle something that relates to our minds and, and an entanglement with intelligences on a higher level that are able to slow drip information that allows us to develop in a certain way. And that those who do use shamanism and altered states of consciousness are more likely to have those downloads of information and i felt that this was going on at the kesem cave but the other important point about the cave is that with on the the horizon is a very important mountain a mountain where the people from the kesem cave would seemingly go to pick up the stone that they would use to create their own stone tools when quite you know, uh, good quality stone was available very close to that they could have used equally. And this was a place today known as Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim plays a massive role in the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, where it's seen as the dwelling of God, you know, the, the quite literally the house or place where God, you know, the God of the Israelites resides. And it said that the God... Of the Israelites um, resides there in his form as the Shekinah the Shekinah is a word that means presence but it essentially is interpreted as like manifestations of light in other words if God appears you know in this way as this this bright light like he did to Moses on Mount Sinai um, or as he would appear above the Ark of the Covenant this is known as the Shekinah and this is the form that God took when he would manifest at his home on the summit of this mountain called Mount Gerizim. And it's it's something that forms into the story of Abraham. This is the first place where he encounters, uh, you know, the God of the Israelites and the God says, you know, you, you, know, you inherit this land and your descendants will do. Uh, Abraham's grandson, who is Jacob, lies down and, um, you know, falls asleep and sees the angels climbing up and down between there and heaven. Um, It's where Joshua and the Israelites go uh, after the 40 years in the wilderness after the Exodus. Um, The first place they make for after they cross the River Jordan is Mount Gerizim where they do this huge, great ritual known as the Ceremony of the the Blessings and the Curses where they use two mountains, Mount Gerizim and, you know, Mount Ebal, which faces towards it. And in the middle is this ancient town or city called Shechem, modern-day Nablus in the, the Palestinian West Bank. And there the Ark of the Covenant was set down. And there are accounts that talk about, you know, the God manifesting above the Ark of the Covenant in his form as the Shekinah. Um, so obviously it was a really, really important place. And I did some check-in and found out that it is associated with, um, you know, what we'd call UFOs or mystery lights today. And that this seemed to be historical as well as modern. And when I went out to the Qasem cave to talk to the archaeologists involved, um, I went from there into the Palestinian West Bank to visit Mount Gerizim. And in particular, the... Community of people there known as the Samaritans. Um, now these claim to be the the, the the descendants, the direct descendants of the original Israelites, and their version of the biblical stories is slightly different to those of the Jews. Um, and it's quite clear that Gerizim had an incredibly important role, and it was the place of God. I mean, you know, there was no other place. But what happened was that there was a schism between the Israelites, and some of them moved off to um, what we now know as Jerusalem, and the others stayed behind in the area of Mount Gerizim. And the, those that went off to Jerusalem tried to suppress the significance of Mount Gerizim and bigged up Jerusalem, and in particular, its holy mountain known as Zion, as the new place where God lives. And of course, to compound that, they built Solomon's temple there. They got the Ark of the Covenant, which was the temp- the temporary place that God was supposed to inhabit and placed it inside the Temple of Solomon so that, you know, God in his temporary form had this new home and that this was not just his new place, but they try to then backtrack it. To suggest that he'd always been there, basically, because you know the the idea of God that we have today, like this omnipotent being that you know sees and hears all, isn't necessarily the way that it was in early biblical times. For them, God inhabited a certain location, and these ideas go back to the time of the uh, the Canaanites, the people that were in um, you know see Canaan, which was the Promised Land, which became Israel. Um, long before the Israelites turned up, and they believed that their gods, mainly El and Baal, lived on the summit of these mountains, uh, quite literally in tents or tabernacles. You know, and this was their firm belief, and that certain signs would show whether God was in residence, if you like, um, by lights appearing and other weird phenomena, probably thunderstorms and stuff like this. And these ideas were inherited unquestionably by the Israelites. And, of course, this is shown in the story of Moses going up to Mount Sinai. You know, as the Israelites approached Mount Sinai, they could see the lights. They could see all all of this phenomena going on at the top of the mountain. And Moses climbs up it, gets the Ten Commandments from God, who is appearing in this bright, you know, this terrifying fire in one, one of the accounts. And he tells him, you know, the, the, the Ten Laws, you know, the Commandments, but also gives Moses the instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark will be the temporary residence of God from that point onwards until they get into the Promised Land and God can be set down at his correct point. Well, his correct point should have been and was initially Mount Gerizim. But as I said, this was eventually shifted with the emphasis going to Jerusalem eventually. And I try and bring this out in the book, you know, almost unnecessarily, because I just felt that this was a story which I couldn't believe how important Gerizim had been and the fact that it was suppressed. But anyway, I went to uh, Mount Gerizim. I spoke to one of the highest ranking um, priests. Um, I had an interpreter and a translator with me, sorry, and a driver with me. And you know, he obviously started talking about all the traditions to do with the mountains. But when I said, you know, are these strange lights still seen here today? And he said, oh, absolutely, yeah, definitely. And I, I said, well, how are they interpreted today? And the the one word he used was malak, which means angels. In other words, what we consider to be UFOs and mystery lights today are interpreted by the Samaritans, who who, who are aware of their presence. Um, and some often see them, but mostly they are seen by visitors to the mountain as the angels, the messengers of God coming down. So, in other words, all of this is there. And, you know, can we dare to suggest that the people of the Kesem Cave were aware of these UFOs and actually encountered them and interacted with them during the time that they were there and that they affected them Affected their minds, affected their body in the same way that UFO encounters do today. And that once that link had been made, is it possible that they were using shamanism to actually try and enhance this connection? You know, this, this what I would call an entanglement with this, the intelligences associated with these lights. And was this helping them to move faster, move forward and become more intelligent? than everybody else on the planet at that time. And, you know, that's what the story that I set out. So in many ways, we're talking about a form of ancient aliens here, but one that's much more subtle, much more ancient, and one which I believe doesn't really even start at Kesem Cave. I think that, you know, our contact with these intelligences probably goes back to the time when we hadn't even come out of Africa and we're in... The, the Rift Valley, the Great Rift Valley, you know, in what is today places like Kenya and Ethiopia, uh, as much as 2 million years ago. And we were inventing fire for the first time. Um, and we are inventing the, the first proper multifaceted stone tools, uh, as much as 1.75 million years ago. And you might say, well, what's, you know, how, how does this all link together? Well, fire... The, the invention of fire changed everything because we started using fires inside caves and we'd have put anything on them you know we would have chucked anything that, that burnt to, to make them you know last the night as it were and very clearly some of the plants that they'd have put on them would have been psychoactive in, in nature and they would have started affecting the minds putting them into a shifted state of consciousness and At first, this would, you know, they wouldn't have made the link, but very gradually they would have realised that certain plants had this effect and that they would have deliberately put them on fires to achieve this. And, of course, what we know is that this is the first stage of communication with otherworldly intelligences and the realms in which they inhabit. So, in other words, these ideas and the possible influence on human development, I think, probably began as much as, I'm going to say, 1.75 million years ago. But by the time we'd left Africa and entered into the Levant, in particular what is today um, Israel, Syria, uh, you know, those areas where we know that these sites from 400,000 years ago, um, you know, can be found, where which are sort of highly evolved, highly developed sites, that this was becoming, you know... A, a false system of magic and contact with otherworldly realms. And I think that it was greatly enhanced by the presence of these, you know, mystery lights or UFOs, as we would call them today. So why would they be there at this time? The answer is the intense geology associated with places like Mount Garrison. You know, that, Mount Garrison is a portal location and remains like that today. It's exactly the same as, as Gim Walker Ranch in Utah, you know, or any number of other similar sites, like many holy mountains, for instance, around the world. I mean, I cite various examples in the book of whole religions that have built up around holy mountains where mysterious lights were seen in the past and continue to be seen today. And that this is a vital and very important element of our belief in higher intelligences but then of course we have to start asking questions about who these intelligences are and how they can use light you know manifestations or ufos to connect with our physical world
0: yeah i I do want to touch on, touch on um if you could maybe mute your audio i can hear myself on your end for a second here um sorry uh, so I just want to touch on one thing um, in terms of uh, your part about the entheogens and the psychoactive compounds and everything. This is something we talk about on the show regularly. Uh, Maurice and I have obviously done a lot of these compounds and uh, had our own experiences with these manifestations and entities and different things, uh, as well as we've touched on the hallucinian mysteries and all the cave art um, depicting psilocybin mushrooms and all that kind of stuff um you talk about acacia and possibly burning acacia and peganum harmala and all that stuff in the book which i really i think that's a uh a great point because that's something i've been discussing for a long time now on the show like four or the last four years pretty much is that I think all of our ideas of metaphysics come from altered states of consciousness so whether you're touching into something or it's a manifestation of the mind or whatever it all comes from altered states of consciousness whether it be entheogens whether it be meditation near death experiences lucid dreaming you know all these different forms the interesting thing about psychoactive compounds though it's literally the only way you can alter your consciousness and still interact with the world around you which I find is is very interesting. And when you're talking about shamanism and evolution of consciousness, I think that that could be a huge catalyst with that. Uh, The point, though, about the DMT, um, I guess my question would be, why not, like, psilocybin? Like, I don't know if you can see the image behind me, uh, behind my chair. There's actually... uh, This is from the cave in uh, Selva Pasquala in Spain, uh, which is one of the oldest depictions of psilocybin mushrooms. Why not psilocybin mushrooms? Why DMT? Because... Uh, everybody I've talked to that knows a lot about this subject, um, to burn DMT even in a cave, I think the most potent strains of acacia that have DMT is like 2%, and those that's in Australia. Uh, so even if you were to ingest the MAO inhibitor with a peganum harmilla, uh, and then ingest the fumes from the acacia, I still don't know if that would... Um, activate a dmt like trip but we all know mushrooms grow everywhere you can ingest mushrooms um also uh, cannabis i mean i'm sure you know of all the archaeological evidence coming out with cannabis from israel and the temples and all that stuff so i think cannabis and edible cannabis could be a huge candidate for that as you mentioned all you have to do is throw cannabis on a fire everybody's those fumes you do inhale you can hot box that cave real quickly um So I guess my only it's not even an issue, but my only draw, you know, takeaway from that would be I don't know if the the burning of the DMT would do it. But there's definitely I'm definitely on board with your um, speculation that these entheogens played a hand in this communication. And I will take it another step further. I think that's the only way we came up with these ideas. I don't think it's possible in day to day consciousness to encounter these things, or at least I have not I don't know if you have.
1: Um, okay. Yeah, a lot there. Um, I mean, firstly, obviously, um, the, the you know the suggestions I made um, of what might have been placed on the fire and how that may have uh, induced altered states of consciousness uh, is is clearly a guess based on what was available, what's known to have been available in the levant at, at that time. You know, going back hundreds of thousands of years, um, and I think that fire was the start of it and so the question becomes you know what is it that could be put on a fire that would kick start this um you know obviously the suggestions i've made you know could do it but you as you rightly say um they may only have given a, a very uh, gentle or mild effect uh, but and one perhaps that um that would need to be superseded if you wanted to take it onto the next level and Psilocybin is obviously an answer. But the problem that we've got, and this is the problem, and, and I mean, I've talked to the archaeologists involved at uh, the, um, the 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 Kesem Cave about this, is that ber- they are totally involved. and uh, Gopher, right? Yeah, Ram- yeah a- 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 Gopher, Rambakai particularly. I mean, Rambakai is an extraordinary man. I mean, you know, his ideas are very similar to ours. Um, he has to be careful with, you know, what he, um, you know, what he writes as far as academic journals and whatever. But I can tell you now, I mean, I spent a lot of time with him. He's, he's totally on our wavelength. And he's on board with the whole idea that psychoactive substances may well have been involved. Um, I mean, I don't know if you know, but um, within the last year or so, um, he was one of the authors on a paper about the idea of how hypoxia could have induced altered states of consciousness in case. I mean, that's a brilliant idea. I mean, okay, he was doing it with, you know, I think some postgraduate stu- students that, you know, were were, come, were were working on this anyway, but he still put his name to it and still considered that, you know, this was this was a very, very important um, proposal. Um, so he's totally on board with the idea of psychic, psychoactive substance. I did ask him, you know, has there been any analysis of the you know the 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 seeds or well, what's the right word um the, the flora basically you know um on a microscopic level and he said not yet so unfortunately until we get that we're not really going to know so everything is guesswork i mean they could easily have been using um, both cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms. But until we get the evidence, it's wild speculation to go any more than the idea that they may have used you know, very large plants and dunk, dumped them on a fire, and that some of those plants may well have had DMT in them and that they may well have had a psychoactive, um, you know, psychoactive um, response to them whilst they were there. So you know it's pure, pure guesswork at this time. But about, I think that the what, theory is sound. I'm su- saying, I, I'm sure that, that theory is sound.
0: What about endogenous DMT activation? Meaning, like, what about what if you know? I know light deprivation has been associated with possible hallucinations. After if you've been in a dark cave for more than a week, there's a good chance yeah. you're, you're probably going to start hallucinating. Oh, yeah. Um or seen visuals same thing with um you mentioned the hypoxia um and in terms of what they were actually doing i think be going into a cave you hear all these stories like leonardo da vinci descending into a cave and coming out an ascended master you hear all these stories Mm -hmm. of people going into caves and then coming out with all sorts of knowledge and um insights and stuff like that so there's that um and then all even fasting can can induce that so Mm -hmm. um So I think that those all are possible. And then I want to point out one thing with, with the the fire, I just read a paper recently too, they don't, now they don't think that fire and cooking meat, the protein from cooking meat, uh, had the enzymes had anything to do with the doubling and the tripling of the brain size. So now that I guess, I don't know if it's been debunked, but there was a paper that came out recently that said, um, that's, that's not as likely. So I think the only thing on the table now would be the better hunting techniques Um, or, and I know, I mean, Paul Stamets is a huge advocate for this now, but Terence McKenna's Food of the Gods or the idea of Mm -hmm. the stoned ape hypothesis or whatever, so I don't know what you think about that.
1: Well, I mean, I I like the whole Food of the Gods concept, that it may well have helped in, you know, human development and innovation and technology. Um, And, I, 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 you know, I, I think it's true, but as you rightly said, it's only one heart, you know, deprivation, um, even life, death, you know, death experiences, you know, sort of throwing yourself off a cliff, you know, with with rope to, to, to break your fall and all the rest of it. I mean, all of these things will help put you into an altered state of consciousness. And, you know, we shouldn't sort of um, forget things like dreams, obviously, and just daydreams and stuff like this you know there are many many different ways of connecting and communicating with what i would perceive as otherworldly realms and intelligences um but i think what's important is that rambakai is particularly um favouring the idea that one of the main thing that was going on inside the cave was communication with otherworldly intelligences you know he's you know that even those words actually appear in articles that have been written about his work. And I find that very, very important that, you know, an archaeologist in the present day can actually come out and say, look, you know, these people were were definitely trying and presumably succeeding in communications with otherworldly intelligences. The question then becomes, if they're real, who are they? Um, And, of course, are they real? You know, Mm -hmm. because obviously a lot of sceptics would argue that they don't exist. Um, that they are a fiction of our imagination. We just believe that we are in touch with higher intelligences. But, you know, I mean, I've worked with psychics most of my life, and I still do. Some of my best friends are incredibly talented, sensitive, psychic people. And I know the type of information that can come out of their heads, Um and, and uh, you know, and, and not necessarily even anything to do with psychoactive substances. You know, it would just fall out of their head and it checks out again and again. And these people are referred to as direct information psychics. In other words, they p- can produce direct information. In other words, information with names, dates, places on a regular basis. And this can lead to the discovery of artifacts, um, solving of, of landscape mysteries, Um, stuff like this which is obviously one of the reasons why I'm so interested in it and we have to assume that the people of the past would have been even more in tune with the natural forces um, around them and that their psychism would have been much better um, developed that doesn't mean that all of them would have had this ability, I don't think that that was ever the case but you know that the shamans, the sensitives the, the witches, whatever it was the terms that they would have used in their communities would have been the ones that would have had this very close relationship with otherworldly intelligences. And, you know, the, the thing that I've always been interested in from my own point of view is how much were we helped along the way? How much has that caused us to build things like the Great Pyramid, Stonehenge, you know, the Nazca Lines, all of the questions that... Um, Eric Von Daniken, you know, obviously asked in books like Eric, uh, *Chariots of the Gods*, and I think it's important to point out that Eric Von Daniken has actually written the foreword to this new book because he believes very strongly in the way that we're taking it. We're we're taking it onto the next level. The idea of help coming from what he basically perceives as extraterrestrial, but he accepts also. Could well be transdimensional, which is the the main focus of this book. That we, we are dealing not necessarily, or not primarily, with extraterrestrial intelligences, but transdimensional intelligences. In other words, intelligences that exist on a multi-dimensional level, but that under some circumstances can, um, you know, interact with our physical world through certain types of environments particularly that associated with plasma which is you know a major part of the book both in greg's section and in mine
0: yeah and uh we've had him on like five or six times and i i really like what he has to say about the plasma and the plasmoids and i really enjoyed your part of the book on plasma um as well um you know The interesting thing is is obviously you're on Ancient Aliens. You've been featured on there quite a few times. Um, everybody I've talked to on the show doesn't actually believe aliens came from somewhere else and built um, any of the megalithic structures or anything on this planet, like actual physical extraterrestrial beings. Um, and I think from a logical standpoint too, like why would something that can traverse the stars come and build something you know, even though they're they're advanced for their time, a lot of these methyl- mm. megalithic structures are not like some sort of UFO it's technology. Science, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like it's it's like blowing our minds still today in terms of what we have, uh, but just the way that yeah. they did it, we don't understand. That's like the biggest um, drawback there. But um, in terms of it's it's good to hear that he's open to new ideas and he's not so set in his ways. Yeah. I think that's the most off putting thing is when somebody writes a book. 40 50 60 years ago and they're still uh, holding firm to those ideas when so much more information and data has come out like to change your mind and alter your opinions and stuff like that and um, uh, you know that idea of help or whatever um, you know I've Watched Ancient Aliens. I actually, your early episodes on Göbekli Tepe kind of hooked me into the whole Gö Go, Göbekli Go Tepe thing, and I went in down a rabbit hole because of that. Um, but uh, through those those episodes and stuff like that, I, it got me more interested in the topic, and I was able to kind of see what's what. But when you look at um, what you're saying, is that something has been in contact with us? I think that that's a popular view right now, given. What's happening with, you know, here in the United States with Congress and these congressional hearings with UAP and everything, and that there's things in our skies that we can't explain. Um, This has been going on forever. Um, I guess my question would be that I always ask, and I don't know if you have some sort of insight on this, but um, is there these external metaphysical beings or is this us dangling this carrot in front of ourselves as some sort of unknown evolutionary mechanism that we're just pulling ourselves along um in a way that is pushing us forward but we don't know that we're doing it to ourselves kind of a thing i don't know if that makes sense to you
1: um well i mean so much could be said there i mean firstly and this is obviously something that greg probably talked about and you know, I, I also use in the publicity, is that if Carl Sagan wrote a paper as far back as 1963, concluding that we have been visited, you know, many, many, many times by what he perceived at the time was extraterrestrial, um, you know, forces, intelligences, and that he even suggested looking into the Sumerian ancient documents for for evidence of this, then, you know, I mean, he's one of the greatest minds ever to do with cosmology and astronomy. So, you know, why should we deny the possibility that at least some of the UFOs that are seen you know, cannot be mechanical, uh, you know, spacecraft. I have no problem with that at all. I would just want to revise. You know, I, don't, and, I think
0: that that's possible too. I, I guess what, what I was saying is I don't think any of those things came down and actually built any of the structures. No. I, I, okay. Those are all human right. structures to me. So,
1: yeah, no, no, no. But, but, you know, you're right. And I've never believed that either. Um, and, but I, what I do believe is if you, let's say, take the Great Pyramid. And if you look at the amount of mathematics involved with its construction, the geometry, um, you know, all of the, 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 the what appears to be cosmic data that's um, encoded within it. You have to say to yourself, is this simply the actions of the architect, you know, 2600 BC working on behalf of King Khufu, you know, or... Are they being inspired to create this almost unconsciously? And if so, are they being helped by some kind of entangled link with higher intelligence, one that's outside of normal space-time, one that perhaps knows that the Great Pyramid will stand for, you know, not just a few thousand years up to now, but maybe tens of thousands of years, I mean, or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. We don't know how long the Great Pyramid, will exist but all we know is that as each decade goes by our understanding of it is more and more mind-blowing about all of the data it can it contains and as as my colleague robert bouval you know has said in, in his books and lectures you know can this all be coincidence that all of this mathematical you know pythagorean data all the rest of it is is all there You know, and I don't think it is a coincidence at all. The architect did incorporate it into the design. But I think that part of it was knowing they knew what they were doing. And I think a large part of it, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, so the skeptic would say, well, then it therefore becomes coincidence. But I don't see it that way. And back in the 19th century, the people that studied pyramids back then who were sort of put down under the term pyramid pyramid idiots pyramid idiots, um, you know. Basically, suggested that some kind of um, you know divine intervention was involved with the construction of the Great Pyramid, and I think that they were closer to the truth than than, than what they, what has been given credit to them because you know that that there is something more than simply making a building and making a tomb in the design of the Great Pyramid. And I'm using that as an example. I mean, quite clearly we could be using Stonehenge, which has also has incredible geometry and mathematics involved with it, or indeed anywhere else in the world, you know, from Angkor Wat to the Parthenon to, you know, to, to many, many na- Native American sites or places in Peru, places in Mexico. And they all seem to have this universal Cosmic design to them, where certain numbers um, crop up again and again and again. And it's easy to write a book and say, oh, well, this tells us there was some kind of lost civilization where all these numbers were important and, and they just filtered through into these different cultures around the world. I mean, to a degree, that's not necessarily wrong, but it, it's also a possible that people are just inspired to do this and incorporate the you know these mathematics this geometry all the rest of it into the design of these buildings through some higher purpose in other words an intelligence that's influencing them both consciously and unconsciously to do it you've also just got to look at things like crop circles another whole subject i know but i mean it's something that i've written books about and i concluded a long time ago that The vast majority of them are man-made but that does not stop them be incorporating the most extraordinary geometry and mathematics and i've spoken to you know all of the main makers of crop circles and they say that when they go in to create them they know certain geometry that they're putting into it but the amount that comes out of it afterwards by people interpreting what they do amazes even the circle makers themselves They think oh my god i i had no no i had no idea that i was putting this knowledge into these creations that i was making in the middle of the night in some field in wiltshire in southern england do you know what i mean it's Mm. it's a funny business so this brings in the whole idea a a term which i first heard in connection with crop circles is co-creation You know, co-creation is the idea that, you know, we become what I call the agents of fate. You know, the minions of some kind of higher intelligence that is both helping us, but also steering us to do things as well. But that whatever this intelligence is doesn't have arms and legs. So it needs us to do it's not dirty work, but it's manual work and that you know, that this in very simple terms is one of the reasons why we're being inspired to do what we do. And what's the greater purpose of this? I, I think that it's something to do with becoming at one with the cosmos, understanding the mechanics of the cosmos and probably understanding our multidimensional environment as well. In other words, how we relate to universes beyond our own to do with dimensions and, um, and cycles uh, to do with, you know, uh, the galaxy as a whole, which has its own cycle. We obviously, we, we revolve around, you know, the the, the the center of the galaxy every 124 million years. And, you know, things like this. In other words, we are inspired to do what we do so that we gain this greater knowledge of the universe as we go along. That's my views anyway. Mm i mean
0: that kind of coincides with what i was thinking like maybe we weren't actually visited by beings from a different planet but does that mean that we weren't sent messages and where do ideas come from can they traverse time and space and kind of going down that uh train of thought
1: um yeah well no absolutely definitely um so who are these beings well I firmly believe, and obviously I give the, the the evidence in not only origins of the gods, but earlier in in the book I did called Light Quest, which came out in twenty twelve, which was yeah many of the ideas that are in this new book started off in the book Light Quest, um, and that's the fact that we are dealing with what we call n-dimensional beings, and the n the the letter n stands for number, which in You know scientific terms means that you don't know the actual number so you just put the number in and the reason why we'd call them that is because we don't know how many dimensions are involved i mean we live in a world that's of three dimensions of space and one of time but plasma would seem to possibly according to various theoretical physicists today have an extra dimension of space um so that means that it operates on four dimensions of space and one of time. And if that's the case, it becomes the 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 medium by which we enter into a higher dimensional realm. And what is that higher dimensional realm? Well, one of the best theories, I think, is what's known as M theory, uh, which is a strain that comes out of string theory where it's predicted that there are actually 11 dimensions and that these 11 dimensions exist in this realm this realm outside of physical the physical universe called the bulk and that within the bulk created probably by the injection of plasma due to uh, white holes you know physical universes essentially of, of three dimensions of space and one of time will quite literally expand out within the bulk and we we live within these expanding out universes which they refer to as brains or brain worlds and that we're in one of them but that there are other brains thus other universes existing outside of those and sometimes they may even touch together come together and under some circumstances it's predicted that some brain worlds May even be maybe even o- able to overlap with each other, and if that's the case, then they overlap with us, that they are they coexist with us if only on a temporary level. But at such times it may well be possible for crossovers between the two universes to take place. and if you can imagine that you know you're dealing with a universe, maybe a physical world. has its own laws of physics which may be like us but they may be slightly different then something like plasma suddenly becomes the portal the doorway the gateway that allows the connection between these two different universes or two different worlds and this could explain everything from cryptids to the to you know light beings coming into our realm physical entities all sorts of things could be passing between these different brain worlds on a temporary basis. But then as soon as those brain worlds part again, it's like they evaporate like cantha and as if they they were never there. And this may well be a good explanation for an awful lot of UFO encounters.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, You know, the string hypothesis, as I call it, because theory, you can't really test it out yet. But... um... The M-theory I find pretty interesting um, as well. And I know we've had other people that have had similar... I know Laird Scranton's whole premise and hypothesis on all this stuff is that there's a material and immaterial world, kind of what you're talking about. Sometimes there's this fluctuation and they get closer together, and that's when you see like golden ages and information being transferred through uh, those Mm. time periods. Um, But in terms of, uh, you know, this whole... Uh, the universe you mentioned you know the universe kind of um, recognizing itself or becoming conscious enough um, kind of a thing I think that that's obviously a very old um, philosophy if you will um, even going back to the the Vedas and all that kind of stuff so um, and you mentioned you know uh, white holes if anybody doesn't know what a white hole is it's what comes out of the end of a black hole so everything gets sucked into a black hole and gets spit back out of the white hole and you're saying that that would be like a whole new universe coming out of that white hole um mm. yeah uh, we had, do have a question from sandy who is one of your top fans and one of our top fans as well and i know she's requested you on a bunch of times uh she has a question she says um During one of Robert Baval's talks at uh, Megalomania, he mentions a prime number on a sealed door and he believes that we may be the opposite of an entanglement. I think this is kind of going along with what you're saying right now. Could the interdimensionals be from entanglements Um, because she thinks that that's fascinating and obviously that, that coincides with what we're talking about right now.
1: Um, I don't know what Robert's talking about there, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, he may well be talking about something inside the Great Pyramid up the, um, you know, one of the shafts, the air shafts, I think. Yeah. Um, but I may, he may not be, so I, I, I don't want to take that any further. But um, I mean, as far as entanglement, entanglement is incredibly important, not just from the idea that um, it could be the solution to telepathy, to mind over matter, to uh, premonitions, to m- many different what we call psychic phenomena, but also on a you know much bigger macrocosmic level, um, it's now being cited as the possible um, mechanism behind um, wormholes. You know, the, you know the Einstein-Rosen bridges that you know that, that each Part of of a bridge may be the entangled particles of the entangled systems of particles and of course as we know Einstein Rosen bridges or wormholes is essentially the basis for black holes as well and of course white holes so you know you're not just dealing with something on on a microcosmic level here you're dealing with something that could be as big as, as as the importance of the universe as a whole and if that's you know, if that's acceptable, then let's look at the idea of entanglement in connection with us and these intelligences. Well, let's look at them from the point of view of plasma. Plasma is essentially made up of um, uh, freed up electrons, what they call negative ions. Uh, And these release photons, which are um, tiny packets or particles of light and everything's held together within these self-generated electromagnetic fields and of course when all this happens it's like a light bulb suddenly switching off and you know you have this object present whether it be small whether it be big whether it be solid whether it be nebulous and it's there for a certain period of time well david bohm the um theoretical physicist who did a hell of a lot of work with plasma and wrote various books came to the conclusion that plasma comes alive. I mean, Greg's probably talked about this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that when it does come alive, it's almost as if something from a deeper level of existence inhabits that plasma environment. Now, David Bowen referred to it as the proto-intelligence. He called it a proto-intelligence. It doesn't actually mean that it's sub-intelligence, but proto as in something existing outside of normal space-time and that it comes in to occupy plasma environments. He said that it it comes from something referred to as the implicate order. but his colleague Basil Hiley referred to this same medium that's outside of normal space-time through which entanglement must take place, by the way, As the pre space, and I like that term. I like the idea of of this realm being known as the pre space. In other words, it's not space, as in we've got, but something outside of normal space time, a a different type of space, if you like. And so he believed that these intelligences were coming in from the pre space. Well, the thing is that this medium of free space, sorry, pre space enables communication to take place instantaneously using entanglement. And if you think that our bodies are made up of neurons and they're made up of electrons that allow our brain to function, our neurological system to work, all the rest of it. So much of what's inside us that makes us tick is exactly the same as what's in those plasma objects. So the chances of entanglement taking place are very high because, you know, we have electrons, it has electrons. So some of the halves of the electrons in us could be in the object itself. That's how entanglement works, because the idea that particles can become twinned, it doesn't matter how far away they get from each other, they retain that relationship on an instantaneous basis. So that if you tweak one, the other one will respond in an equal and opposite direction. And it doesn't matter how far away they get. And plus, although this is slightly outside of the question we're trying to answer here, but um, almost certainly entanglement works outside of time as well. It operates on a level which is not to do with the forward motion of time that we consider it, but Mm. we won't worry about that for a second. But what I'm getting at is that there's every possibility that these intelligences that occupy these plasma constructs you know, which I consider to be the explanation for many UFOs, not all, many, can communicate with us through entanglement. So what that means is that, you know, when we see these objects, when we connect with them, when we observe them, it forms that bond, forms that link, which explains why people, I feel a strong personal connection with the objects that they see. But also, why the objects seem to respond to the presence of the witnesses? In other words, they transform into shapes that are familiar. They, you know, they may move if, if they think about them. And you know, there's quite clearly a bond, a strong bond that exists between the witness and the phenomena that's observed. And that almost certainly is because of entanglement. Mm. And quite care- clearly, if these intelligences within these objects are hyper intelligent in other words beyond our understanding and capability by a million times then they're going to be very easily able to manipulate us in mind and in body which is why again people feel that when they see these objects you know that they 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 either feel that they've got to turn away because they're seeing something they shouldn't see or they feel they have to do something you know or they, that certain information comes into the head. I mean, it affects them. It seriously affects them, not just at that time, but afterwards as well. And the other interesting point is that a lot of people feel that when they connect with the, these objects, that, the, that they, they feel the connection with the intelligences involved, and this is something that they retain for many years afterwards, possibly for the rest of their life. They also become very creative-minded. They become... Writers, they become poets, they become musicians, uh, etc. Um, you know, or sculptors, or even I mean, I've, I've, all of these things I've known. You know, people to become after they've had such encounters. If we go back to our friends at the Kezemkay, four hundred thousand years ago, is something similar happening to them? You know, in other words, was the development within their community? allowing them to become the smartest people in the planet because of this type of entanglement with this phenomena being followed up by shamanic experiences to try and strengthen that link with these, you know, these, these otherworldly beings, these trans dimensional intelligences that we're talking about. I think the answer is definitely yes. And that's obviously the main thrust of origins of the gods.
0: Mm yeah sandy said yes the door is in the great pyramid it's inside uh one of the shafts and she says zowie uh has blocked access so to her question yes there you go um so i thought we could wrap it up here do you have time to do like a five or a ten minute patreon session me yeah you yeah of course yeah okay okay well well, let's wrap it up asking me baby (laughs) Maurice, Maurice doesn't get his own patrons No. Um, yeah, so let's wrap it up here. Um, and we're going to do like a five or 10 minute Patreon session here. Uh, but I really appreciate you coming on. Um, is there anything you want to plug other than your website? Andrew I have the link down below and your book origins of the God. I have the link down below. Also, if you want to buy it, go to inner traditions, um, inner traditions. Um, is uh, the publisher and shout out to Inner Traditions. We love what they uh, put out. So,
1: um, Yeah, no, I mean, you know, if you're interested in, in what I've been talking about, go to andrewcollins.com, all as it sounds. Um, I'm on social media. Um, all the links are, you know, on the opening page of the website. Um, and if you're in the UK, um, we're doing a big, big event up in Blackpool in the north of England, with Eric von Daniken and Giorgio from Ancient Aliens over the weekend of June the 24th to the 26th, uh, where I'll present be presenting all of this material there. Tickets are still available, so if you're in the UK, we'd love to see you there. Um, other than that, nope, you know, I mean, the book's also available, of course, through Amazon and Barnes & Noble um, as an audio book an e-book and a physical material copy as well.
0: Yeah, I know there was a delay because of the, uh, everything going on in the world, but I'm glad that that's out. And everybody, check yeah. it out. I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, if you listen to our podcast a lot, you know, we talk a lot about young and altered states of consciousness and entheogens and plasma and metaphysics. This book's perfect, it's got all of those things in there. Um, Thank and you. Uh, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it and look forward to what you guys uh, work on next. So, um, again, everybody, go check that out. Uh, before we head on over out of here uh, everybody head on over to our patreon at patreon.com slash mind escape podcast for just two dollars a month we'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments like the one we are about to do right now with andrew Um, so i will upload that probably later tonight along with the last one that we did which hasn't been put up yet so uh, go check that out and, uh, listen, we really appreciate your time, Andrew, and, uh, we got to get you back on again in the future. Lots of other stuff we could have got to that we didn't have time for, but, uh, really appreciate your research and what you're doing. And, uh, you and Dr. Greg put out some, uh, great books, which we appreciate. So Absolutely. again, um, we love everybody stay safe out there and, uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace.